It all comes down to faith, doesn't it? The whole journey from from being a, a three-month-old right till till being a 97-year-old or however long the Lord gives us. It's all about a journey of faith. And we have to keep growing in our faith every step of the way. And it keeps getting tested, doesn't it? Today is going to be another example of faith being tested. And uh, I think our, our faith gets tested on, uh, on good days sometimes, but usually it gets tested more so on bad days, doesn't it? So we're going to be looking this morning at an example of a bad day and how we can respond. So I would ask you to again bow with me and let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Father in heaven, this journey is all about faith in you, and you're not so interested in us having smooth sailing all the time as you are in growing faith within us, that we would trust you regardless of circumstance. And so, Lord, we recognize that so often what we would say is a terrible day or terrible circumstances you have allowed to come our way because you desire us to grow in faith and trust in you. And we see that throughout the example of the life of Moses and the life of Israel, that so often, Lord... You have just called them to trust you, to believe, to have faith that you will see them through. And so, Lord, this morning as your people, we gather much like Israel, and so often we, like them, have a shortage of faith. We, like the disciples, look at the wind and the waves, and we say, Lord, help us, we're going to drown. And so, Lord, we pray that today you would build up our faith, that regardless of circumstance, we can look to you, our rescuer, our redeemer, and that you will provide. Bless your word, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll begin this morning with a story that's told of a man who awoke one morning lying in a puddle of water in the middle of his king-sized waterbed. Now, it's not what you think, the puddle, that is. Uh, he, He right away figured out that the puddle must be a leak, a puncture, in his king sized bed water mattress. And so he decides that in order to fix the puncture, he's going to have to locate it. And so he rolls the heavy mattress outdoors and fills it with more water to increase the internal pressure so that he could locate the leak more easily. However, as he fills this giant king-sized mattress with more water, it begins to bloat up until it becomes so large it is great difficulty in controlling this mattress as it goes from being flattened to almost a round ball. And as it turns out, his backyard was perched atop a steep slope, and suddenly, this mattress in this round shape suddenly begins turning over and rolling, picking up speed down the hill. Well, the man, of course, jumped up. He tries to hold back the mattress by jumping in front of it, but in the process, he trips, and the mattress bowls him right over, running over the top of him, and continues down the hill where it finally lands in a clump of thorn bushes, poking it right full of holes, and all of the water just drains right out on the ground. Well, the man picks himself up and completely disgusted, he throws out the ruined mattress, he throws out the waterbed frame, and he moves in a standard bed into his room. That's it. Problem solved. No more waterbed. The very next morning, he wakes up. And again, he is lying in a puddle of water. Well, it's not a waterbed this time. What is the problem? Turns out, the upstairs bathroom had a leaky drain. (laughs) Anyone ever had a day like that before? One of those days where it seems like things have gone really bad and you utter those infamous words, well, at least things can't get worse. And then they do. Anyone ever had a day like that? 
where you said those words? Yeah, it happens. Well, Moses had a day like that. And we read about it earlier. Henry read Exodus chapter 5. And if we continue the story on into chapter 6, we read about one of the most challenging 24-hour periods in Moses' life. And you'll remember, Moses had many challenging 24-hour periods in his life. But this was one of the worst. It happened near the beginning of the Exodus period. Now, you'll recall from last week that Moses had great difficulty in accepting God's call to leave the simple life that he knew as a shepherd in Midian and go to Egypt to embrace the challenging role of confronting Pharaoh, the tyrant, and leading the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. But finally, after all of his excuses and all of his objections have been overcome by the Lord, the reluctant Moses accepts the call of God. He gets on his mule or walking, whatever his transportation was, and he begins his journey back to Egypt. Along the way, Moses meets up with his older brother Aaron, who the Lord had sent to accompany him on this assignment. And so they arrive in Egypt, they meet with the elders, and things start out great. They summon the meeting with the elders, and they reveal to them all the words that God had given Moses. They showed them the signs of God's power, the the staff being thrown down on the ground, turning into a snake. Moses putting his hand in his cloak and, and it coming out with leprosy, putting it back in and it was healed. They showed the signs of God's presence. And believe it or not, the people listened to the words of Moses. They saw the signs and just like that, they believed. They believed and received that God was with them. And they began to praise God that he had heard their cries. Now you'll remember that 40 years earlier... Moses, when he had attempted to free the people by jumping in and killing the slave master, after this he'd been rejected by the people. And then in Exodus chapter 4, verse 1, one of his excuses to God had been, what if the people don't believe me or listen to me? And so here we see that the people, in fact, did believe him, they did listen to him, and so the acceptance of the people must have been highly reassuring to Moses. He probably... I suspect, even entertain the thought in that moment that maybe this job wasn't going to be as hard as he thought it was. You know, maybe he began to entertain that he was just going to waltz right into Pharaoh and just say, thus saith the Lord, let my people go. And Pharaoh was going to look at him and say, okay. And they'd be on their way to the promised land flowing with milk and honey the very next day. You know, things are starting out great and Moses is probably feeling quite optimistic. And so... At face value, you would think this is how things should go, right? So long as Moses is obeying the Lord, he's walking in accordance with God's will, we would think that everything should go that easily. Everything should just be smooth sailing ahead. But is that true? Is that the way God operates? Does obedience to God's will guarantee no opposition or difficulty? Does it? Not even close. Just ask people like David while being hunted by King Saul. Or Daniel while he was being tossed into the lion's den. Jeremiah while being imprisoned at the bottom of a well. John the Baptist just before being beheaded by King Herod. Peter before being crucified upside down. Or Paul during one of his many floggings or imprisonments or shipwrecks or being stoned or being falsely accused. No, all of these people were walking in accordance with God's will, and yet they had terrible things done and happen to them. 
And so this leads us to our first principle for this morning from our text. Having a bad day does not mean that we are out of God's will. In fact, sometimes it's just the opposite. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, we read these words. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And so, just as Moses and Aaron were about to find out the hard way, walking in obedience to God's calling on our lives does not guarantee a smooth ride. In fact, sometimes it's just the opposite, where obedience to God's will for our lives puts us smack in the middle of the enemy's crosshairs. Back to Moses. The scene is dramatic. As here we have 80-year-old Moses and 83-year-old Aaron walking into the opulent throne room of the most powerful man on earth. Now who here, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but who here over the age of 80 would feel up to the task of going to the most powerful man on earth and throwing down a gauntlet like, let all of these people go? Anyone who feel like this would be something for you over the age of 80? I'm going to say you're probably going to let yourself off the hook. Well, not Moses and Aaron. 80 and 83 years old, they've been called by God to this important assignment. And so here we read in Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord says. Let my people go. And remember Charlton Heston in those famous words from the movie? Let my people go. Well, this is what Moses does, but he doesn't just say that. He goes on and says, so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. And Pharaoh replied, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. So here we see Pharaoh's response was not only negative, but downright hostile. He took these words of Moses as a personal insult. And if you listen closely in this moment, you can almost hear the sound of Moses' balloon bursting, or his waterbed mattress, if you will. If he had any illusions of waltzing into Pharaoh and saying, let my people go, and Pharaoh was just going to say, okay, off you go then, well, in this moment, he realizes he's got another thing coming. This was not going the way he had hoped. Now, you'll have to remember a little bit of context. The Egyptian pharaohs fancied themselves as gods on earth. And they considered their many Egyptian gods of Ra, Isis, Osiris, and a whole host of other gods and goddesses, they considered all of them far superior to the other gods of the nations around them. They, by and large, considered their gods the most superior and powerful gods because they were the most superior and powerful nation on earth. And so they had good reason to believe that their gods were the greatest. In stark contrast, the god, the lone god of an enslaved people, the Israelites, would be considered pitiful, powerless, for what kind of a god would allow his people to be enslaved for four centuries? And so it's not that Pharaoh won't have ever heard of the god of his enslaved people, 
when he says the words, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? He had heard of this God, but he didn't see him as powerful. What kind of God would allow his people to be enslaved? And so he, in his own mind, rightly reasons that his gods are far superior to this lone God. He will not obey this God of the Israelites. But to Moses and Aaron's credit, they don't back down. They persist in what God had demanded. And they say, release the people. And if you refuse, there will be plagues on the way. Well, Moses and Aaron saying this totally backfires once more. After hearing this, Pharaoh becomes angry, irate, and he accuses Moses and Aaron of taking the people away from their work. In verse 6, we read that the very same day, Pharaoh orders the Egyptian taskmasters to make the hard work even harder by depriving the Israelites of the straw they needed to make bricks, while all the while demanding they fulfill the same quota. We're going to take away some of your raw material, but still make the same amount of bricks. This is akin to taking away a farmer's tractor and air seeder in the spring, and still demanding that your grain bins be full come harvest. Any farmers here up to that challenge, no tractor, no air seeder, but you're going to have full grain bins come harvest. How's that going to go for you? Probably not very well, right? It's basically impossible. Now, to make matters worse, this is not only what the taskmasters uh, impose on the Israelite foremen, but when, of course, they inevitably don't fill the quota, they start beating and flogging them for not keeping up with the pace that was expected. And now I want you to take note here that the more Moses and Aaron persist in speaking God's word to Pharaoh, the more they double down on declaring the truth, the more angry and resistant Pharaoh becomes. Now this is a perfect illustration of what often happens in the lives of people with whom we share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Often when presented with the word of truth, the word of life, rather than accept the truth, the person will become more resistant and more adversarial. I've had it happen to me personally where it seemed as though the person that I was trying to present the gospel truth to was further from receiving salvation after hearing God's truth than they were before. Because they just seemed to get their back up the more the truth was presented. It was back in the summer of 2012 when I was the chapel speaker at Turtle Mountain Bible Camp. And after the very first chapel, I had a teenage boy come up to me, and I'd never met him before in my life, didn't even know his name. I don't remember exactly what he said, but the gist of it was this. He comes up to me, and without even introducing himself, he says, I'm an atheist, and I think that everything you've said here tonight is a lot of hot air for weak-minded people. And so I'm more or less, hi, nice to meet you too. (laughs) Not a great first impression. But he wanted me to know where he stood and what he thought of what I was presenting. Well, this began a series of back and forth debates between the two of us over the next few days. And it seemed as though every time we'd finish talking and I would challenge him on some of what he was saying and he'd try to come back on what I was saying... It seemed as though every time we'd finish, his back would be up higher than it was before. The next day, his cabin leader also came and shared with me how 
in the, the devotions, in the, in the cabin time, this, this teenager kept hijacking the devotions with all of his objections to the faith and all of his arguments against God. And in the course of these conversations, I just really began to have serious doubts if anything that I was saying to him was landing anywhere or, or making any sort of headway. It just seemed to be having the opposite effect. Let me just ask you, have you ever had a similar experience where you've tried talking with someone about God's word, about the truth, and it just seems like the more that you talked about it, the more they just seemed to get a little angry, a little upset, and they started to come back with a little sharper replies or maybe even got personal attacking you? Has anyone ever had that happen? Something like that. I've had it happen in different circumstances as well. And sometimes we can go about speaking to people in the most respectful manner possible because you truly desire this person to know the freedom that is in Jesus Christ. And you speak to this friend or a co-worker or a family member. But the more you do it, the more angry and resistant they become. And in that moment, just like Moses with Pharaoh, it might feel as though you are failing. And it may even feel as though what you're doing is counterproductive that maybe you would have just been better off staying silent altogether. But I've come to learn that so often the apparent hardening of someone's attitude when they're exposed to the truth of God's word, that apparent hardening tells us that we're not failing, but that God's living word is confronting something in this person's life. And more than likely, it is confronting the lies that the enemy has entrenched within their belief system of how the world works and their place in it. And you see, when someone is confronted with the possibility that their entire belief system is wrong, it rattles their chains. And not to mention that Satan doesn't want to lose this person to a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, And so he will use every dirty trick in his arsenal to make sure that this person feels offended. How dare you say that? Or angry. Oh, what a bigoted thing for you to have a viewpoint like that. Or maybe they'll just be distracted. I've got a lot of stuff up. Yeah, religion, God, I'll get around to it sometime. You know, I'm just so busy right now. When this happens, recognize that it's a spiritual battle. There's a spiritual battle at play. And we come back to the teenager at Bible camp. It was Thursday evening chapel, and I'd been building up towards it, and I made the gospel presentation that night. I extended the invitation, and the Holy Spirit, all I can say is he moved in a powerful way that night, and a number of first-time decisions for Christ were made, as well as a number of rededications. And as the cabin groups dispersed around the camp that night, and they had their own sharing times and devotion times and prayer times, that cabin of boys with the self-professed atheist who had been causing such a ruckus, if you will. Well, that cabin had a number of boys make first-time decisions for Christ. And that night, there was just this freedom that the Spirit gave. There was such openness. These boys started sharing with each other. And at one point, this group, and you gotta, you got to remember, this is a group of 14- and 15-year-old teenage boys, you know, boys who like laughing at, still laughing at making farts in the night and stuff like that, you know. This is the age group we're talking about. And yet... God was working in such a way that it's, at one point, these teenage boys spontaneously surrounded the atheist boy. They laid their hands on him, and they began praying earnestly that God would reveal himself to this boy. 
He didn't say anything that night. He just took it all in. But he didn't have any opposition for the first time. That night, he didn't say anything. And the next morning before chapel, that cabin of boys, one of them came up to me and said, we'd like to share with the cabin or with the camp what happened last night. And so I said, that'd be great. So um, in chapel, I invited them all up to the stage and the entire cabin of boys, including the self-professed atheists, they came up on stage and they began to share what had happened the night before. And a couple of the boys gave testimony that they'd given their lives to Christ and there was cheering. No one expected this self-professed atheist to grab the mic. He was tucked in the back. He was just there because the whole cabin was up. That's what we all thought. But then he walked to the front of the platform in front of the boys. He took the mic and he said, I came to camp this week with the intention of making others doubt their faith in God and to renounce him. But last night, In spite of all of the terrible stuff I've been throwing at these guys all week, they showed me God's love. And I now believe he's real. That just made my jaw about hit the floor. This was the boy I'd been going head to head with all week. And all of a sudden, he didn't didn't say he'd put his faith in Jesus Christ yet, but from where he was, to say he now believed God was real was a miracle. It was a breakthrough. And so let me just say, even if it feels like it's counterproductive what you're doing, keep on praying. Keep on speaking what God tells you to speak. And above all, keep on loving. Because just as it was for Pharaoh, sometimes things have to get worse before people are ready to finally hear and receive the truth of God. And so remember, the presence of opposition doesn't necessarily indicate that you're not walking in God's will. In fact, sometimes it's the exact opposite. So like Moses and Aaron, don't back down, obey God, and speak the words he has laid on your heart. That's the first thing to do when you're having a bad day. Secondly, when you have a bad day, remember that God does not always operate the way we do or the way that we think he should. Back to Exodus, chapter 5 and verses 15 to 19. Skip ahead in the story to verses 15 and 19, and there we read that not surprisingly, the Israelite foremen make an appeal to Pharaoh about the impossibility of making bricks without straw being provided. But Pharaoh tells them in no uncertain terms that it's their own fault, that they're lazy, and they'd better get back to work or else. And then as these now thoroughly distraught foremen come out from their audience with Pharaoh, they find Moses and Aaron and they lay the sole responsibility for this situation at their feet. Verse 21, they say to them, May the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in his hand to kill us. Now, notice... The four men immediately assumed that because things were going badly, that Moses and Aaron must have disobeyed God. They said, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. This wasn't a pleasant thing they were saying to them. This was downright nasty. They were saying, you have disobeyed God. He should judge you for what you have brought upon us. You see, the four men presumed to know how God would work. And because he did not work the way they anticipated, they were offended And they were looking for someone to blame. Now we Christians can do the exact same thing. We have certain expectations of how God should work. And we think when we look at a certain situation that, well, if I were God, I would do it this way. 
right? Have you ever done that? God, if you were going to work here, I, I could give you a few pointers. You should do it this way, right? As though we could tell him how to do it. Don't we do the same thing so often? And then when he's not doing it the way that we would have done it, we think, hey, what's up? You're doing things wrong. And then we look around and say, well, it must be because someone's disobedient. I want to blame someone. And so the foreman and the people are about ready to run Moses and Aaron back out into the desert. When the reality was that things were actually going exactly according to God's plan. In fact, all the way back in Exodus chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, if Moses had remembered, God had told him directly that this is how things were going to play out. Listen to this. Exodus three nineteen and 20. God had said to Moses, But I know that the Pharaoh of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. You see, sometimes our bad day is the start of God's plan for something bigger than we could have anticipated. So remember, God does not always operate the way we do or the way that we think he should. But that doesn't mean that things aren't right on task. Thirdly, when you're having a bad day, remember which way to run. Forty years earlier, Moses had a very bad day. He killed the Egyptian taskmaster. He was hunted by Pharaoh. He was rejected by the Israelites. And he ran for Midian. He must have felt again having a bad day 40 years later. That same impulse, that urge to run and escape back to the quiet life as a shepherd in Midian. But what would he do this time? Verse 22 and 23 tells us, Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you have sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Now, I want you to disregard Moses' complaint for just a moment. We'll put that on the, on the side burner. And I want you to focus on the very first line. Verse 22 says this, Moses returned to the Lord. This is a powerful statement. Moses returned to the Lord. For it shows that in the midst of his absolutely terrible day, things haven't gone how he hoped. The people have turned against him. They're blaming him. They're criticizing him. He returned to the Lord rather than running to Midian. So when you're having a bad day, let me ask you, where do you run? Where do you run when things aren't going the way you had hoped they would go? I know from personal experience that at the first sign of trouble, when things aren't going how I wanted them to go, the urge to run back to spiritual Midian is powerful. That could be in the form of a temporary pleasure of a sinful vice. It could be our urge to run back to the safety of silence. I wish I'd never said anything. Run back to the safety of anonymity. I wish I'd never stepped out to serve. Run back to your wilderness and away from God's call. That urge is always there when things aren't going our way. And here Moses received a stinging criticism from the very people he had come to save. But he took it to the right place. Rather than running back to Midian, he ran to God. I once had a very seasoned pastor tell me with a a twinkle in his eye. You have to know him to understand exactly why he said what he did. But it resonated with me. He said this, If you never want to be criticized, never serve God. 
That's how Moses must have been feeling at that moment. Here he says, okay, God, you dragged me out of Midian. I didn't want to come, but I came. Now here I am obeying you, and all of the people are dumping their garbage and their problems, and they're blaming me. But you see, the servant of God should never be surprised to receive criticism. We could list almost every single man and woman that God used powerfully throughout Scripture and see that every single one of them endured criticism, none more so than our Lord Jesus himself. Now, of course, because each of us are fallible humans, criticism can sometimes be the result of our own mistakes or flaws. But other times, criticism comes unjustly, as it did with Moses, when he hadn't done anything other than obey God, and yet people were blaming him. Either way, when the bad day comes, and the critics' words sting, follow Moses' example. Don't run to Midian. Run to God. In Exodus chapter 6 and verses 1 to 8, we can go on to read God's reply to Moses' bitter complaint. And you'll notice that God does not reprimand Moses for complaining. <laughs> I'm, I'm amazed by this so often. I, I come to God and I complain, and he's nothing but wonderfully kind and gracious. He never shamed Moses. He doesn't scold him for being honest. You see, no matter how beat down we are, how wounded, how discouraged God cares, and he has great compassion for us in our need. So no matter what your problem, no matter what your sin or shame, he desires to help you. You know, we are more important to God than what we have done or accomplished. This may be difficult to understand in a world that measures us by our success or failures, but we matter more to God than what we can accomplish for him. You see, instead of criticizing Moses for having doubts and fears and complaints, God simply reminds him of the plan. And just as God reminded Moses that the plan was still right on track, and so encouraged and strengthened him to get up and to keep going, God can and will do the same for us. So run to him in prayer. Pastor Chuck Swindoll once wrote, When your schedule presses, when your prospects thin." When your hope burns low, when people disappoint you, when events turn against you, when dreams die, when the walls close in, when the prognosis seems grim, when your heart breaks, look at the Lord and keep looking at him. So when you're having a bad day, remember first that doesn't automatically mean you're out of God's will. In fact, it might well mean that you're in his will. Secondly, remember that God doesn't operate the way we do or the way we think he should. And thirdly and finally, remember which way to run. And may we each run to him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you dealt so graciously, so wonderfully kind with Moses. Thank you, God, that this is the way you deal with us. We are fallible, Lord. We are so easily discouraged. And failures and setbacks and and all of the pressures of life that just seem to just put us in a vice sometimes, pushing at us from every side, not to mention the attacks of the enemy, Lord. We are so easily discouraged and ready to give up and run back to Midian. But Lord, thank you that no matter where our hearts are at, our minds are, how much we have to complain about, whenever we run to you, you can handle our complaints. You can receive them. 
And you are so gracious and kind, and you remind us that your plan will not be thwarted, that so long as we submit ourselves to you and obey, you will use us for your glory. Even if it's not immediately apparent to us, you are working out your will, just as you would yet reveal to Moses and the children of Israel. And so, Lord, I don't know where this is landing for everyone today, whether they're having one of those days, or maybe it's preparation for a day yet ahead. I pray that you would remind us of these three lessons, Lord, that as we face circumstances, whether individually or as a family or as a church, Lord, that just don't seem to be going our way, help us to remember to look to you, to run to you, for you are a strong tower to those who would find refuge in you. In Jesus' name, amen.